This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's a long text. Please remain standing if you're able. Starting in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is God's Word. Please be seated. This morning is our second of three sermons on chapter 5, which means that some of what was just read to you will not be handled in detail uh, this morning, so you'll have to come back uh, next week as we finish up this little mini-series on chapter 5 through three related sermons. And so since this is a continuation of last week, and since this is the second of three spring break weeks, uh, I I figured a little review uh, is in order. And so you can see on the screen behind me, uh, I I believe, that that this is how we're summarizing chapter 5 in total. This is what we're exploring over three weeks. Those who are justified by grace are free to increasingly love. And so we, we said last week, you don't have to love or obey to be justified. You don't have to love or obey to be declared righteous by God. You don't have to love or obey to be loved by God. But those who are justified by the unmerited grace of God will increasingly love and increasingly obey. Uh, the first part of that statement is what's going on in Galatians 1 through 4. The second part of that statement is what's going on in chapter 5. And so like we said last week, on the one hand, this summary of Galatians 5 is, is quite sobering. Because if you're not increasingly uh, loving others, you're not justified. It's just a true statement. Uh, said from our perspective, from the experience of humanity, if you don't across time see an increase in love in your life, then at the least you have no evidence to prove that you're justified. And you have no evidence to prove that you're saved. This is, of course, a major theme in the book of James, uh, Jesus' brother, the first book written uh, in the New Testament. In that book, James very famously discusses the fact that those who are saved by faith are, in fact, saved by faith alone, but they're not saved by a faith that remains alone, uh, that, in fact, real faith bears fruit. And so Paul says this in verse 6 of chapter 5. He says it this way, that biblical faith, genuine faith, saving faith, 
is a faith that energizes and expresses itself in love. And so we said last week that this summary of Galatians 5 on the one hand is sobering, but on the other hand, it's actually quite enticing. And that's because of this. Paul's message in chapter 5 is that if you want to love more, you can. If you want to love more, serve more, sacrifice more, benefit others more, you can. If you want to be less self-centered, less self-promoting, less self-referential, less self-advancing, if you just want to be less selfish in general, if you in general want to be more like Jesus, less like Judas, you can. And so it's sobering and enticing all at the same time. And so based on this summary of Galatians 5, that you have to be loving on the one hand and you can be loving on the other hand, we looked last week at chapter 5 at two of the preconditions to us loving more. Remember how we said like boiling water has to have certain conditions like containment and temperature at a certain level. And we said that, that freezing water had to have certain conditions present like, uh, like moisture and, and temperature below a certain level. Paul in chapter 5 is going to give, from my perspective, three preconditions on becoming more loving. The first one is in verse 1. Paul says, stand firm. And then in verses 1 through 4, he basically says we, we have to exercise faith in the grace of God if we ever want to be loving. We have to believe that we don't have to love each other for God to love us, which actually frees us to love each other and not ourselves when we love. My understanding that his love towards me is unconditional will allow me to love you and not me whenever I love you. My understanding of his unmerited grace towards me will actually free me up to not try and earn his favor when I serve you, but to serve you because Christ has already served me. But we said last week, not only is faith necessary for us to love, we also said that hope has to be in place if we're ever gonna love. In verse five of chapter five, Paul says, eagerly wait for the certain future that is yours in the gospel of Jesus. And Paul is teaching us that we have to proactively wait. We have to intentionally and proactively realize that our ultimate satisfaction in life will not happen in this day. It will only happen when Jesus returns. And so if I can start my day realizing that it's a vain pursuit to make myself ultimately happy in this day, I'm actually free to make this day about what you need and not my ultimate need, which will be mine when Jesus comes back. And so that was last week. Christians have to, can, and will love more and more. And last week, we discussed those two ideas of faith and hope and how they impact love. We looked at them in detail. But in addition to faith and hope, Paul says there's a third precondition, if you will, to us ever loving. It's in verse 16, and it's in verse 25. He says, walk by or walk with the Spirit. So this morning, I want to consider what it means to walk by or to walk with the Spirit. And to understand what Paul means by walking by or walking with the Spirit, I have three points I think to understand this, we have to understand the war that rages within. We have to enter into the battles that comprise the war. And we have to remember the battle that won the war. So we have to understand the war that rages within. We have to enter into the battles that comprise the war. And we have to remember the battle that won the war. If you are a student of wars throughout history, you probably have some sense for where I'm going. If not, I hope I make it clear in time. Okay, first... If you don't have your worship folder insert out, I would beg you to get it out. Uh, We're going to be digging our way uh, through this passage, uh, especially uh, at this point 
right now. So first, understanding the war that rages within. Look at verse 17. Look at what Paul says is happening in you if you're a Christian. If you're a believer, this is happening inside of you. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh, that is your sinful nature, your old self, the part of you that still rebels against Christ's lordship in your life, the desires, the longings, the cravings, the passions of the flesh are against the spirit. And in this context, it's clear, Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Holy Spirit are against the flesh. For since because these, the flesh and the spirit, are opposed to each other. And Paul is teaching us that within our being, there is the flesh, the sinful nature, the old self, that inside of us is the flesh that hates God, is opposed to God, has desires that are contrary to God. And Paul says that within the believer is also the spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who hates the flesh, is at war with the flesh, has desires that are contrary to the flesh. This is the common and constant teaching in the epistles of St. Paul. Paul is constantly teaching and he's constantly assuming that prior to our conversion, prior to our new birth, prior to God opening our eyes to the gospel, prior to us repenting and believing for the first time, prior to that, we were simply and only the flesh, the old self, the sinful nature, the rebel opposed to God. And then Paul teaches in this letter and in many others that at our conversion, God gave us a new nature, a loving nature, a new self, a new man, a new woman at the core of who we are. And I don't know why God did it this way, but for whatever reason he had in his own sovereign purposes, he decided to not take the old self out of us, but to leave the old self in us until the day we die. More relevant to Galatians 5 is this. At our conversion, God sent his spirit to live inside of us, to indwell us, to be in the new heart, to be in the new self. And God sent his spirit into us for various purposes. The first purpose that we came to in Galatians was that God sent his spirit into our hearts to convince us at our core that we're already beloved children, to connect us to the father in intimacy. Paul Paul speaks in Romans 5 of the Spirit being poured into our hearts. And and in the pouring of the Spirit into our hearts, the love of God is poured into our hearts and we experience the Father's love. And so that's the first reason the Spirit is poured into your heart. But then the second reason the Spirit is poured into your heart, according to the book of Galatians, is that the Spirit is there to fight against the flesh. The Spirit is there to wage war against the old self. Paul is saying in the way he writes this, that God has declared war on the old nature that rebelled against him. And God in his holiness has mysteriously moved into our core. And the spirit is in our hearts, verse 17, the spirit that is in our hearts is opposed to, lies opposite to, literally lined up for war against the flesh. And so verse 17 says, there is a war raging within believers. And that we have to understand this war for us to ever grow in love. And so in an effort to understand this war, I have four ideas I want to pull out from the text. Four ideas I'll go through quickly. First, Christians are capable of love and hate. Christians are capable of obedience and rebellion. Christians are capable of glorious selflessness and grotesque selfishness. Have you ever noticed in the same day, yea, the same hour, yea, the same minute, that you have the capacity to truly love 
and you have the capacity to truly blow it. This is the Christian condition. Each night as I look back on my day, I can always see places in that day where I truly loved and where I truly served. I can see moments in that day where I truly followed Jesus. I can see moments in that day where I truly sacrificed myself in some way for the benefit and the gain of another. And I can always see in every day places and instances where I love myself, where I disobeyed Jesus, where I, in a sense, sacrificed others in some way to bring gain to myself. In verses 19 to 21, Paul lists the works of the flesh, the works of the old self, the works of the sinful nature, the works of the self-centered self. And Paul is telling us in this text that even with God inside of us, we are still capable of and we still will sin in these ways. Sexual immorality, hatred, jealousy, fits of anger, envy, drunkenness. And then Paul ends it with the phrase, and other things like this, as if the list was not enough. And then Paul says in verse 22 that the Christian is capable of and will increasingly become loving, joyful, peaceful, kind, good, reliable, gentle, self-controlled. The Christian is capable of love and hate. Hate is just a real good translation of the word enmity in the list of the works of the flesh. And you just need to know that while we're alarmed by it, Paul, in his theology, is not alarmed by our bipolarness, by our Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde-ness, by the sporadic and erratic way in which I live my life. Second, to understand the war that rages within, I want you to see this, it's going to be on the screen as well. Christians never live from a simple and pure wholeheartedness. Look at the last line of verse 17. For these, spirit and flesh, are aligned for battle against each other in order to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now think, Paul doesn't say, these two are opposed to each other in order to keep the other from doing what the other wants. He speaks of these two realities inside of us from one perspective as if they're not us, and then he ties us right back into the conflict by saying, these two keep you from doing the things you want to do. In our understanding of this war raging within, if we begin to think of it as something removed from us, Paul drives the conflict right back into the very essence of who we are. I mean, think about what Paul is saying. He is saying that when the spirit opposes the flesh, you oppose you. The new you opposes the old you. And he says, when the flesh opposes the spirit, you oppose you. The old you opposes the new you. This means that in the totality of your being, if you're a Christian, you never do anything wholeheartedly. Anytime a Christian chooses to love, there's a part of them that resists it, doubts it, works against it, opposes it. And anytime a Christian chooses sin and selfishness and rebellion, there's a part of them that resists it, that doubts it, that works against it, that hates it, that opposes it. And this is probably my big aha moment for the week. I think I've probably taught you everything else in this sermon at some point in the last six years, but this one actually really helped me understand my experience of the Christian life. In everything I do, there's a part of me opposed to what I'm doing. This explains the disequilibration I feel in life to an increasing fashion. I can't, with reckless abandonment, chase after sin like I used to. I've tried. 
I used to be really good at it. I can't do it as well as I used to. And even after all these years of repenting and believing, I can never totally rid myself of my self-centeredness in any situation, in any relationship, in any moment. To to reiterate uh, what I just said, this explains the disequilibration, the lack of equilibrium that you will feel as you grow in your Christianity. That you will never, in this life, as one with an old self and a new self, do anything wholeheartedly. What did David say in CBR yesterday? I mean, what are the chances in Psalm 12, he talks about having a double heart. That's us. If it was true of the man with the heart after God, it's true of us. That the core of who we are, we can both hate and love, and we're always living out of this disequilibrium. Okay, third idea. The war is primarily between the Christian's old self and the spirit of God. This means that the war is not primarily between your new self and your old self. In, in the second point here in a moment, we're going to look at how we enter into the battle and how we uh, enter into the battles that comprise the war. But for now, I want you to notice that verse 17 is first and foremost between God and the old you. It's primarily between God and the old you. That should actually help us relax a good bit. Lastly, I want us to see in understanding this battle that Christians will increase in love and decrease in selfishness over time. With the, listen to this. With the exception of the cross, God is undefeated in all of his battles with humans. Every time in human history where God has fought against a man, God has won. Every time the infinite dukes it out with the finite, the infinite obliterates the finite. Except at the cross where God goes to the, to the cross and dies at the cross so that the new you can join him in all of his victories except for the cross. When God fights man, man loses. This is really good news. The old man is dying, and it's not primarily you and the new you against you, the old you. It's primarily God setting himself up at battle against the old you. I love how our catechism says that God in his kingliness first subdues us, and then he subdues our enemies. Good news, the old man is dying. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but I try to make it my habit at New City to talk about our obedience and our sin in language of increase and decrease. I try and use nuanced language instead of absolute languages. I try to say stuff like I'm saying right now. Christians are increasingly loving and Christians are decreasingly sinful. Why do I do that? And why do I try to never ever say Christians are increasingly sinful and decreasingly loving? Because based on my theology and based on my experience, I know that I'm both rebel and faithful at the same time until I die. And I also know from passages like Galatians 5 that the old is dying and that the new is growing. If we think of ourselves in absolute ways, like I'm sinful instead of I'm decreasingly sinful, we lose sight of and we begin to lack confidence in the truth that God is growing us and that God is making us more loving, more reliable, more kind, more self-controlled over time. I'm sinful is not the right description of who I am. I'm decreasingly sinful is as accurate as the Bible will let me be. But also if I say of myself, I'm loving instead of I'm increasingly loving, I lose sight of and I begin to lack the humility commensurate with the fact that I'm still capable of fits of rage, jealousy, envy, even drunkenness, orgies, and the like. The absolute language that I will tend to use 
is not how the Bible would talk of me. The Bible would speak of me in this nuanced way to keep me both humble of what I'm capable of about to do and confident in what God is doing. So beyond the fact that God wins whenever he fights humans, I want you to look at verse 24. This is the one text I want to pull out as proof that Christians grow in love and decrease in sin. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What can Paul mean when he says our old man has been crucified? I mean, it can't mean that the flesh is dead. I mean, think about it. In verse 17, the flesh is fighting against the spirit. What can he mean when he says, past tense, I have crucified the flesh? Listen to this. In the Greek, to crucify is not synonymous with to be dead. It's synonymous with to be dying. In fact, while crucifixion always led to death, the Romans perfected the gruesome art of keeping a criminal alive while crucifying them. They had their reasons. Mainly, they wanted to make an example of anyone being crucified. So when we hear, my flesh has been crucified, we think, well, it must be dead. How can I possibly keep sinning? When the Galatians heard verse 24, they would think, my old self has been crucified. It's dying. It will die. It's not yet dead. The point, again, from Scripture, Christians get better. So Christians are capable of love and hate. We're never wholehearted in anything. Is primarily God's battle and not ours. And as such, we will increase in love and obedience until we die. Okay, second for today. Second for today. Not only do we have to understand the war raging within, but to love, we also have to purposefully enter into the battles that comprise the war. Okay, think about it this way. From the little bit that I've studied uh, of wars in history, I know that each war is comprised of many battles. And while I know that many, uh, each side will win sometimes many battles, uh, from what I understand, at least in theory, only one side wins the war. Okay, and so that's why we talk about battles, plural, and war, singular. And to simplify this and to hopefully not oversimplify it, the picture that Paul paints in Galatians 5 is this. Inside you... The flesh is fighting for the service of self. And inside you, the Spirit of God is fighting for the service of others in every moment and every interaction. And again, to simplify this and hopefully not oversimplify it, Paul seems to indicate, this is really hard for me to say out loud, but Paul seems to indicate that in each battle between the flesh and the Spirit, we give the victory in the battle to the flesh or to the Spirit, depending on how we enter into the battle and depending on what we do. Not the war, but the battles. It's hard to deny this if you look at verse 16. But I say... Walk, by, with, or in. There's no, there's no preposition in the Greek. It's just walk the spirit. And so you have to supply it. This is ordinary in the Greek. So that's why if you have translation, some will say by, some will say with, some will say in. Okay, it says clearly with in verse 26. That's why I'm gonna tend to, to, to work towards saying walk with the spirit. Okay, so, but I say walk with the spirit. That's a command. And in so doing, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's an either or. The word gratify means to complete or bring to fruition. 
It's a word used to describe the last step in a plan. It's the word used to describe the last statement in a logical argument. And Paul is saying that the flesh in you, the flesh does the following. It begins towards sin, uh, towards the works of the flesh, including the things written in verses 19 to 21. And the flesh tempts you to complete the circle with your choice. The flesh tempts you to gratify, to bring to fruition Uh, its desire, its passion, its lust. And so Paul says in verse 16, he commands actually, walk with the Spirit and thereby not take the last step with the flesh. It's rightly said that temptation to sin is not sin. Sin is succumbing to the temptation. So we're chatting with a friend. And another friend, or maybe we should say acquaintance, comes up in the conversation. And we've recently heard some disparaging remarks about this person, or maybe this person has actually done some disparaging things against us, and and we're tempted to gossip. In Mark and in 1 Corinthians, uh, the Bible says that Satan is the tempter. But in James, Satan's nowhere to be found. James says that the flesh is the tempter. That should scare us a little bit. The Apostle Paul uh, says that we're in that place And the flesh will begin to gossip, but the flesh cannot take us into gossip. The flesh invites us to complete the circle. And in that smaller battle that's within the larger battle, the larger war that God has won in the cross, we can either A, choose to gratify the flesh's desire for enmity and rivalry, or B, we can choose to walk with the spirit towards self-control and thereby not bring to completion the desire of the flesh. So God is sovereignly winning the war inside of you, but each battle is a choice for you to make. You can either join God in his victory or you can choose in that moment to fight against God and lose in that place and time. We know that it's a choice because Paul would not otherwise command us in verse 16 and verse 25 to walk and keep in step. He would just say, you will walk and you will keep in step. We're at home and we're alone for a few hours and the flesh desires to go on the internet and take part in sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. In that battle, the flesh cannot take you into sin. The flesh can only get you to the next to last step and urge you to jump in. Paul says, walk by the spirit into goodness, for example. And in so doing, you'll not bring to completion the desire of the flesh. If you've been a Christian long enough, and I'm watching some of you nod your heads, you know experientially what I'm talking about. It is that moment where you know the choice is right in front of you. To end that battle, either side with the flesh or side with the spirit. You've been sinned against, and the flesh and Satan are both tempting you with enmity and strife and dissension and division. And the spirit is moving with or without you to the place of love, peace, and patience. You're at the party, and you're offered the ill-advised next drink. And the flesh says, you deserve it. You can handle it. Drunkenness is fun. And the Holy Spirit is moving with or without you to the place of goodness and self-control. And Paul is saying that in those instances, we can serve self or we can serve others by how we enter into the battle. I mean, why am I saying the Holy Spirit is moving with or without you? Look at verse 25. 
The, the, the word that starts this verse can either be if or since, depending on the context. That's why a bunch of the translations, including the NIV, will start this way. Since we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with means to stay in line behind. In the Greek, it's always used of moving objects. And it's like 80% of the time used in war. So keep in step means we're going into the war that way. Stay close. The text tells me and my experience tells me that there are many battles in my Christian life. And when the flesh starts towards a work of the flesh, I think I can either stay there and dive into that sin by bringing the desire to fruition, or I can follow figuratively and often literally the leadership of the spirit. Verse 18, the spirit is on the move. I can either go with him or I can lose sight of him and gratify the flesh. Paul is saying draft. Think NASCAR. The Holy Spirit is in the lead and he is on the move, tucking behind him, pick up speed, go. I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have an illustration for women, I apologize. <laughs> Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is the fullback, you're the tailback. As the spirit breaks through the defensive line, stay right up on him, follow him, get to the end zone, get to Pater. You'll have to supply the illustration that applies better to your life. This makes me think about what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. I'm put it on the screen so you don't have to turn there. This is verse 13. No temptation. Temptations can come from Satan. Temptations can come from your flesh. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And now I realize that this is spiritual. It's experiential. I'm trying not to say phenomenological because the staff is going to make fun of me if I say that word again. But we're talking about the living, almighty, eternal, invisible God in us, in our hearts. And in light of this, I've been praying this week that God would open our eyes to what is actually happening inside of us and that God would actually give us understanding of what's going on within. And maybe right now you're actually seeing at a deeper level things that happened this week where you were at the fork in the road and God made it clear to you. You can go this way. You can lose by following the flesh or you can enjoy the victory that's already ours in Christ that the Spirit is leading us to. I'm actually praying that this week, maybe even in this day, you'll be in the middle of something and God the Spirit will give you a keen awareness of what is actually happening and thereby, by the Scriptures becoming effective and powerful in your lives, you will have more energy, strength, and faith to follow the Holy Spirit, to draft, to be the tailback following the fullback. At any rate, that's my prayer. I'm praying God would apply it to our lives that way. In order to increase in love, we have to understand the war that rages within. We have to enter into the battles that comprise the war. And finally, we have to remember the battle that won the war. Remember the battle that, past tense, won the war. So we've said that a war is comprised of many battles. And while there is one victory in a war, usually both sides within the war win battles. That said, usually in every war, there's a pivotal battle that leads to the outcome of the war. The classic illustration of this point would be Normandy, would be D-Day. 
in World War II where if you look back upon it historically, the victory came uh, because D-Day uh, over a gruesome period of time uh, eventually was a win uh, uh, for the United States and those allied with them. For us to love in any battle, we have to remember the battle where the war was won. In the Christian life, D-Day has happened, victory is ours. And while we might suffer defeats in the battles that remain, in fact, our theology says we will suffer defeats in the battles that remain. Victory Day is coming because D-Day has happened. What was D-Day for the Christian life? Go back to verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who have been purchased by Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh, the old self, the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Again, remember, to be crucified doesn't mean to be dead. It means to be dying. As I told you, the Romans had this incredible, they, they, I hate to even say it this way, but they perfected the gruesome art of crucifixion. Based on what they would do to a man prior to crucifixion and based on what they would do to a man while being crucified, the Romans could keep a man alive for days, if not weeks, And so you remember, of course, in the most uh, uh, famous crucifixion in all of history, that of Jesus Christ, the Jews and the Romans didn't want Jesus on the cross for the Sabbath, and so they were going to go do what? They are going to break his legs. One of their tactics to keep a criminal from being able to push up and gain uh, air in their lungs. And so when they get there to snap his legs, they find that he has already yielded up his spirit. And the reason he yielded up his spirit is because he took a severe beating before he ever got on the cross. Rome's way of keeping a crucifixion short. But again, most crucifixions took a long time. And Paul in his epistles speaks of us being crucified with Christ. For example, he says this in Galatians 2.20. And what he means by that is that our flesh, our old self, was crucified with Christ. Our flesh suffered a D-day loss at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so in, in, verse, uh, uh, in our verse, verse 24 of chapter 5, Paul, in reference to our conversion, Paul, in reference back to that day where we turned our backs on the old life and followed Jesus for the first time, Paul writes about that, writes about our conversion, And he says, the crucifixion of the flesh with Christ became effective in real time on that day. And on that day, the old man started dying a long, slow death. Now listen to me. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God died for our sins so that at the cross, only our old self would be crucified. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God waged war on you, but not all of you and not the new you, the old you. God waged war on his own son. He executed all of his own son, body and spirit, so that only the old rebellious spiritual me and you would die. And so that the new you and me could grow and flourish and enjoy life abundant and eternal. The only way that we can enter into the battles of this week and have any chance of love is to remember this great love that God has given to us in this battle that won the war. In that day, Christ lost. Christ was crushed. Christ was defeated. 
so we could win and so we could be victorious. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious gospel. What incredible truth. That not only did Jesus die for my sin, but at the cross, you crucified the man in me that wants to sin. We praise you for this salvation, that it is totally in your hands. You will do all things necessary to bring this work to fruition. And yet we praise you that you call us into this battle and supply us with the Holy Spirit. And you let us join you in the victory that is yours and ours at the cross. Jesus, we thank you that not only did you not fall to the various sins that we fall to, but you never, ever let the Spirit leave a situation without you following. We thank you that included in our righteousness is keeping in step with the Spirit. We pray that you would convince us that you love us as those who are already ones who keep in step with the Spirit. And out of this acceptance we have in you, would you make us those who in this life stay in step with you more and more? Would you enable us to worship you now? Would you uh, allow our eyes to see Jesus? Would you build the faith that you have put into us? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.